Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. If you are looking to support the creation of mental health content or you want your questions answered or you'd like more live streams and all or more videos, all that good stuff, you can hop over to my Patreon page. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Katie Morton. There are tiers to meet every budget and I hope to see you over there. Okay. Without further ado, let's jump into today's questions. And the first question says, hey, Katie, could you give some strategies for when you go into free state when you have to make decisions? Good question. I do this often, and sometimes the decisions are simple, simple, like what a plan for dinner on a specific night, and sometimes bigger, like should I start a morning or nighttime routine? I'll freeze and then end up scrolling on reels or distracting myself with something else. Help. This is a great question and obviously it got a lot of likes because you're not alone in struggling with this. I think for a lot of us, decision-making can be really overwhelming for a couple of reasons. So let's just talk about this as a whole because I think figuring out where it comes from for you can help you better manage it, okay? So we can go into freeze state when making decisions because growing up, we were never given an opportunity. Now that could be due to abuse, you know, emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, something like that, feeling like decisions that we wanted to make weren't taken seriously or our needs and wants weren't even part of the conversation, right? That could have been emotional neglect, you know, physical neglect, anything like that. Could have also had helicopter parents where they made all the decisions for us, which again is a form of abuse. Um, But either way, we didn't feel like we had an opportunity to make decisions. Therefore, we get into adulthood or even I would say like late teens when you start going out with friends or going out with another, you know, seeking a romantic partner. I'll always remember my like high school boyfriends and stuff. You go to Blockbuster or whatever the local video rental place. Yes, I lived in that time. And you'd be looking at different videos and you'd be like, I don't know, what do you want to watch? I don't know, what do you want to watch? And that was the most frustrating thing to me. I'd always be like, I just pick something, you know? Or why don't we pick two? You like action, I like rom-com. Let's pick one of each. Um, I feel like that is where it's going to show up for you because those are the opportunities you have to make decisions on your own. And that's when we're like almost hit with the realization that we were never allowed to do it before for a myriad of different reasons. Now, I don't know if that resonates with you, but if it does, because that's that's honestly where I think this comes from. But the second component I'll mention really quickly is I find some of my patients with anxiety disorders, meaning panic disorder, where we have panic attacks, uh, generalized anxiety disorder, social anxiety disorder, that can cause this as well. Because the increase in the concern or the worry about making the wrong decision freezes us up. It's like too overwhelming to our system 
We go, you know, in the fight, flight, freeze, and we can't do anything. So we freeze. Now, either of those anxiety or potentially like not being able to make decisions growing up, what do we do? Okay. So if that's the reason, right. And this is why I'm talking it out this way, because as a therapist, I'm always trying to figure out what the cause is or what the root is. And from that, we can decide what moves we need to make in order to change the behavior we don't like, right? We don't like going into this free state. So taking into consideration maybe where it came from, what we need to do is understand those triggers and maybe journal about what comes up for us. Now, I know not all of you like journaling, but I cannot encourage you to try it enough. At least even just 10 minutes, you know, a couple times a week can really just take the edge off a little bit. But figuring that out, what comes up for you, what maybe triggered it earlier on, is it the decision-making itself? What can we do instead? So if there's a trigger, if it's anxiety and it kind of builds, we need to use our coping skills earlier on. But if we find ourselves frozen, what that means is we're pushing to our stress response. What can we do to alleviate some of that cued up energy? Can we scream into a pillow? Can we do a full body shake? Can we journal about what we're, you know, the frustration that we're feeling? Can we call a friend? I know it might sound silly, but sometimes just talking about things, talking it out with our partner, getting our bodies moving, putting splashing cold water in our faces can kind of shake us out of that stress response and hopefully give us, even if it's just a brief window, a little window of space where we're like, I could make a decision and not feel frozen in fear. Right now, it's not perfect. And we're going to have to try different things. We trial and error around what we can do to pull us out of that stress response. Because I could say, like somebody left a comment that was beautiful and super helpful. I guess there's an app that can help you make decisions. It's like you spin the wheel or something. And those are great. um, But it doesn't really, it's great for in the short term, but doesn't really like figure out what the problem is and work to fix it. And so my advice is try to find ways to calm your system down because you're getting too overwhelmed. It's, It's scary for whatever reason. And if it does come from abuse in your past, finding ways to stay grounded is going to be key. Ways to calm your system down is going to be really helpful. But it also, you know, as you do that trauma work and as you process that out with your therapist, whether that's through EMDR, somatic experiencing, basic talk therapy, schema therapy, whatever it might be, um, as you do that, it will get better. Okay. And I might even encourage you in the meantime, when a decision is made or not made after the fact, when maybe we've come out of that free state a little bit, that might be a good time to journal as well. Like, what would I have liked to have done? I used to do that as a recovering people pleaser. My therapist would say, okay, in that situation, because I'd be talking about, oh, you know, I did this and I didn't really want to. And I said that and blah, blah, blah. It was all to please people. And I was just like spinning out. And she would say, okay, in a perfect world where no one was going to judge you, everyone would be happy with whatever decision you made. What would you like to do? Now, when I tell you that was hard, oh, that was hard, but it's a muscle that needs to be worked considering what we liked and don't like. And she would ask questions like around each kind of option. Okay. So what do we want to eat for dinner? Okay. Well, do we want to cook? Does anybody feel like cooking? Do you want to cook? I don't want to cook. Okay, Katie. And then she'd be like, okay, well, what would you, would you want to go out? Do you want to get out of the house? Yeah, I think I do. Okay. What places do you like to go out to eat to? You know, okay. I really like this place, ABBA in Austin. Okay. Do you want to go there tonight? You know, so it sounds silly. And I know for some people who don't have this difficulty, you're like, why is this holding you up? But the concerns we can have about pleasing people and about making the wrong decision and the stress or anxiety that comes out of that can freeze us. And so sometimes it's helpful to play it out 
after the fact when there's no emotional charge. And then just let your therapist know this is coming up because I think this is something that we can, you know, use some grounding techniques and some like helpful venting to take that edge off and get you out of that. Okay. Another person said, I can relate to this. As an add-on, how do you overcome this feeling of being overwhelmed once you once you actually made a decision? When is it time to take action? For example, after deciding what I have to do at home and making a plan and writing my to-do lists, but instead of going through with my decision, I find myself engaging in dysfunctional coping strategies, or I find myself doing the exact opposite. Oh, sabotage. As I have no control over my own actions, and it drives me crazy because it takes so much effort to make a decision in the first place. What I think is happening here is is similar to what was freezing us in the first place, but then we go into the shame, blame, embarrassment, I think trauma response. I'm just, I'm not saying that you, you know, for sure have trauma in your life, but I wouldn't be surprised if you did. This sounds kind of like that, that shit talking we do in the shame spiral. When we finally make a decision and we're like, what are you, who are you kidding? You're not going to get that done. You're so broken and stupid and lazy and blah, 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 right? That it just eats us up spits us out and stops us from doing what we had planned on doing. And so we've been having this conversation with ourselves potentially for our whole lives or for many, many years. And so it's going to take some time for us to kind of realize it's happening and stop that shame conversation. And so when you're feeling overwhelmed after the fact, I want you, if you have an opportunity, again, I know life doesn't always pause for us to manage this, but we need to find time. Okay. So even if it's just for five minutes in your phone, or whatever. Um, but hopefully you can take a little bit of time and notice the thoughts that are coming up and jot them down. Not every one of them. Let's try for three to five. And these are usually repeats or they sound very similar, like the ones I mentioned, you know, like you're so broken, this is never going to get better, or you're never going to get all that done. You're so lazy. Or what What makes you think you can do all these things, right? We can have all this, these kind of similar thoughts that keep happening over and over and over. Start noticing them. That's step number one. We don't have to do anything with them. We just have to notice. Then, and you've probably saw this coming if you've been watching for many months or years, we want to bridge statement it. So then we're going to have to challenge it, you know? Remember, bridge statements aren't positive. They're just not negative. So it's like, instead of me believing and uh, agreeing with the fact that I'm lazy and I'm never going to get anything done, instead of allowing that thought to happen and be accepted, I instead argue back with it's possible that I'm not the laziest person out there, or maybe I'm not quite as lazy as I, I think that I am, or I'm open to the thought that Katie might have, she might be a little bit right here. Maybe it's not that bad, right? So I don't want you negating your emotions, but I want you challenging those negative thoughts, okay? Just, just keeping that in mind. And I think that that's what's going to help. I have a feeling the sabotaging nasty conversation is one that we've been having for a long, long, long time. And so give, be patient with yourself and show yourself some compassion as you try to change it. Because again, if it's been happening and happening and happening, it's not going to be like a quick fix, right? We've been building on this and strengthening that muscle of shit talking ourselves for years. So we're going to need to be patient and know that little by little we can change it. Okay. Another comment just says, I can totally relate to this. As an add-on, how could I recognize in advance when I'm going into the no decision possible freeze mode? Often realize in retrospect that I was in the freeze state, but only in retrospect do I realize it. I then see clearly that I was unable to make a simple decision. And despite having had multiple options in that specific moment, everything I saw when I was right in that situation was just one option or no option at all. I find myself in a lot of situations where I can't think clearly to make calm and wise decisions. And I often end up making no decision at all. Is there anything that could help me? Yes. 
when we don't know that it's happening, what I want you to do is to think about and consider, like track back to the last time you went into that freeze state. Because we know in retrospect, think about it. Okay, so that time, this last time that happened, I want you as much as you can recall, because you might not be able to recall all of it once you trip into that freeze state, but I don't care about that. That part's not important to me. It's the lead up. What do we experience as we start to feel overwhelmed? I'm going to give you some options just maybe to get your thoughts going, but everybody's different. These aren't the only options, okay? Does your mind start to race? Do you start to consider other people more? Do you start to sweat? Do you start to feel like really agitated, almost like you can't sit still? Does your breathing get shallow? Um, Do you start to feel tightness in chest, stomach? Do you... uh, Do your thoughts start to wander to people that you don't know, making assumptions about what they want and don't want? Do you start thinking about concerns of pleasing others? You know, consider how it shows up for you. And we might be able to track it back to when we, when that decision, I don't know, it depends. It might be we're already stressed or anxious. And then we need to do some basic self-care, like sleeping, eating, drinking water, those things to take the edge off. Maybe just do a body shake, take a shower. Or we knew a decision was coming and it slowly built. And I want to know what that slow build is. Because what's really important is the first, like I'd say 50% of that buildup, right? Because sometimes once we hit past that point, it's hard to stop that runaway train. But we can work in that first 50% buildup. Does that make sense? And so what I'm trying to get you to do, sorry, I got an itch on my nose, is to notice what you experience thought-wise in your body in that buildup. What do you think, feel, you know, all that stuff. Tell me about it. Because the more we can acknowledge that and identify that, then we can use that information next time. So that when we start to feel a little buildup, then we can do the things I was talking about before, like the full body shakes, calling a friend, um, doing some of that release of anxiety, of worry. Maybe we journal, maybe we scream into a pillow. Like I said, maybe we just go for a walk. Maybe we pet an animal. There's a ton of things we can do. We can distract or process. Um, Those are two different types of coping skills. I have a video called 25 Coping Skills. I encourage you to check it out. Um, It could be helpful to come up with some ideas. Also, the comments are filled with a ton of them. So you could um, look into that. But that first chunk is where we can actually make a difference. Once we've kind of pivoted into that second portion, sometimes it's just a slide. We're just sliding right into it and there's not much we can do. And that's okay. We're just going to try, right? Every time we're going to try, we might fail. That doesn't mean that we're a failure. It doesn't mean it won't work. It just means that we have to try again with different strategies. And unfortunately, there's no way to really know what will help the most. Um, if you're doing EMDR, they'll have you kind of like tap in some happy memories that could help. You could do that on your own where you just think about something happy and do a little butterfly tap or just think about it in detail and then tell yourself about it when you start to feel the overwhelm. There's a ton of ways that we can work with this, but we have to work earlier on. So let's track back and see how it feels for us. Okay. Okay. Let's move on to question number two. This question says, hey, Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. says, I was recently diagnosed with PTSD. That's post-traumatic stress disorder. I can't shake the feeling that the abuse that I've experienced isn't bad enough to cause PTSD. Look at that judgment. That I'm weak for reacting this way. Is it, um, It's hard for me to even call it abuse. How do I get rid of this feeling? How to break through to tell in therapy what happened to me? Is there a chance my therapist will think that I'm being oversensitive? <gasps> Greetings from Germany. That's a great question. We have quite a few comments on top of this. Um, 
Okay. So unfortunately, that shame spiral I was talking about with the last question, that I'm not good enough, I'm broken, something's wrong with me. But that shame, blame, uh, guilt, kind of swirly, twirly, nasty cycle we can get caught in, unfortunately, is one of the most common symptoms of PTSD. And I believe that it has to do with the fact that when we're traumatized, we fear for our lives and we often don't have control over our situations and we don't have full information as to why something like this would happen, right? And you can apply that to abuse. Like, why would someone I love do that to me? Or to a car wreck? Why would something like this happen? Like, we want to make sense of it, right? If there's no real reason that it took place, we don't know what to make of it and we assume it's us, right? And if we've had multiple traumas, which is most people's situations, even more so we start to think like, what is wrong with me? Am I like a fly strip for trauma? Like, geez, like it just gets so scary and overwhelming, right? Something must be wrong with us. And that's why when we have PTSD and when we have experienced abuse that we think I'm making it into bigger deal than it was. It's really not that we, we downplay it. We minimize. And that was adaptive. It helped us back in the day to like keep pushing forward and not become completely debilitated with our trauma, right? But now it's getting in the way. And it's part of that like shame blame kind of cycle. And so know there's not a chance that your therapist is going to think that you're being too sensitive. Therapists are not there to judge. They're there to offer support, um, Feel, help you feel seen and heard and held in that safe environment. We call it offering unconditional positive regard. And that means no judgment. Unconditional, right? So there's no way your therapist is going to think that. And how do we get rid of that feeling? To be truthful, it's going to take time. I'd love to tell you there's like a presto fixo, but as you talk it through or do the EMDR or whatever type of processing is works best for you and your system. As we do that, this is going to come up. And I want you to tell your therapist that this is coming up, that you're wanting to minimize it, that you think it's not that bad of a, a big of deal and it's not bad enough to warrant a PTSD diagnosis, even though you have it, right? I want you to let them know this is happening. And I have a feeling that they're going to have you challenge it a little bit. I find it helpful to do what I call checking the facts. So as you tell yourself, well, it's not bad enough to cause PTSD, my argument to check your facts would say, well, did they diagnose you with PTSD? The answer is yes. Would they lie to you about that? If you're like, well, maybe, what would it, how would it benefit them, right? We, we have to just check our facts, think about it, challenge it with information that we have. Now, does that make it go away completely? No, but does it kind of take it down a notch? Yes. So keep doing that. Let your therapist know and know that, slowly but surely it will go away. It just unfortunately takes a little time. It takes a little effort, right? We got to build up this new muscle called self-compassion and self-confidence. And we don't have that right now. And that's okay. Trauma does that to us, but we can get it back. Now you said um, how to break through to tell in therapy what happened to me. Take your time with that. Don't feel like you have to go into therapy and blurt out everything. Most people don't. I happen to be one of those people, but that's not trauma-based. If I had a, you know, a deep trauma that I was trying to share, that might be harder for me to share than just what I'm sharing, which is like life stressors, people that I've lost, which even that's still kind of hard. So be patient with yourself. Don't feel like you have to talk about everything. If they're pushing you too much too, too, much too fast, you tell them that they're doing that. So I think this is just moving too fast for me. Um, and as you get more comfortable and feel more brave and 
feel a little bit like your head's a little bit above water, you'll be able to share little by little. But don't get, don't feel like you have to go all in. I don't want you to overwhelm yourself and potentially re-traumatize you. I want you to feel like you can go at a pace that feels manageable. Where we're like, oh, that feels a little too much. Okay, okay, I'm good. We'll just chill. And then you're like, whoop, you know, challenge yourself, but don't overwhelm. And tell your therapist about that. I'm worried about talking about my traumas. Um, I don't know how much detail I can share. You know, it's overwhelming. Tell You can tell your therapist all of this kind of behind the scenes. You're like, maybe it doesn't have anything to do with therapy. It has everything to do with therapy. Let them know so then they can work with you. Okay? Now, there was an add-on that says, my therapist calls my past traumatic, quote-unquote traumatic, but I really struggle to admit that it was a trauma and call it that. We're talking about past psychiatric hospitalizations that caused me a lot of grief, unwanted memories, nightmares, anxiety, etc. at the moment. I'm also afraid to bring up what happened in childhood because I feel like calling it abuse is just too much. But it's still causing me major issues, especially with a fear of men. Is it possible to bury traumatic memories and PTSD symptoms under a depression and for them to come back once the depression improves? I wasn't struggling with this so much previously, which adds to my feeling of not being a quote unquote real issue. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. Now, your therapist calling it traumatic is always interesting. People have all sorts of reactions, feeling like, oh, that word can be overwhelming if we call it the actual thing that happens. Like with people with sexual assault, if we call it the R word, it can be very triggering. Even just calling it abuse can be triggering, right? Any words that we use can be really hard for patients to admit and call it that, okay? Now, what's happening is, again, that minimization, that invalidation that unfortunately comes with PTSD and kind of the like shame, blame, embarrassment cycle. Um, it's interesting. So the the past psychiatric hospitalizations, people don't talk enough about what I would call like, I mean, we call it medical trauma because you were in the hospital. But any, any kind of healthcare trauma, I think, we we just don't talk about it enough and it's unfortunately very common especially psychiatric hospitalizations there's a reason that i talk about 5150s which is in the states is when people can be involuntarily meaning against their will held in the hospital for at least 72 hours so three days it's usually a little bit more so the reason i say that's a last resort is because it's not pleasant i don't even think it's helpful for my patients i don't think it's therapeutic in any shape or form but I do think it keeps them safe for a little bit. If we're going through something that's really, I'm worried about them trying to take their own life or the life of someone else, I have no choice but to place them in on a hold. Now, knock on wood, I haven't had to do that. Um, but that's it's a last resort. I would prefer to do check-ins every day, increase sessions, get them into treatment, other options, not hospitalizations, um, because it can be very, 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 overwhelming to our system, traumatic. Like you said, you're having unwanted memories, nightmares, anxiety. It was ended up not being helpful. So I guess the question here is, could depression hold, like cover all of this and then it improves and releases it? Yes. And the reason being, I'd like to think of depression as like anger in. So when things are going wrong in our life and we have traumas and upsets and um, hurtful people, abusers, all this stuff is happening, we, it might not feel safe for us to have anger out. That might put us in a vulnerable position, cause more abuse to happen. Or if we're in a hospital, it's not possible, right? Especially if they medicate us, it can make it feel like we don't have any choices, right? We're just kind of sedated. And that can feel very scary. And it can feel like we don't 
make us feel very vulnerable, right? And so all of that leads to what I would say is like no other option but to turn the anger that we have inward and cause depression. Now, once that depression lifts and we're able to see and actually acknowledge what took place, then we can feel all of the things that were suppressed under that. Because if you don't remember, anger is protective. It's a protective emotion, right? Anger says, get out of here. It spines out. I'm feeling hurt. Therefore, I'm going to lash out in anger to protect myself, right? And anger usually is a secondary emotion, kind of piggybacking on top of like hurt, vulnerability, feeling unwell, things like that. It's protective. And so, yes, I believe that your depression could have been protective in that case for you and keeping the anger in. And now that it's lifted, we're, we're experiencing all the other symptoms that have come out of it. Does that make sense? I hope so. Now we're moving on. It says, as an add-on, I've also developed PTSD from something that quote unquote only happened once when I was about five. Is that even possible? Yes. Uh, traumas don't have to happen more than once. Like I said, PTSD technically is one event where we feared for the life or safety of ourselves or someone else. One event. Complex PTSD is multiple. So it is possible. Otherwise, my life was pretty non-traumatic and everyone around me was great. It's so hard for me to believe that this is the only thing that it, that should have happened. At all. I was also bullied as a kid, but I think I've worked through that pretty well. And my flashbacks aren't related to that. Yes, that thing that happened when you were five, when you're about five, is enough to cause trauma, especially if we haven't processed it. And not to mention that when we're younger, we're in just such a more vulnerable state. We don't have access to the things that we do as adults, like finances or the ability to move out. Um, you know, when we're younger, we're very much at the kind of beck and call or kind of just more held captive potentially by our abusers if they're our family members or caregivers, right? And we don't have a lot of resources to pull from. And so, yes, having something like that happen can be traumatizing and jarring and you feared for your own safety or your own life. And so I would start talking about it in therapy if possible. I'm so glad you've been able to process the bullying. Let's use some of those same tools and skills to help us like process and dig out this old one. Okay. And hang in there. It does get better. And having something happen once doesn't make it any less painful. Okay. Another add-on says, why do I feel more affected by other people's traumas than my own? For years, I've been struggling to realize that I was in fact sexually abused and I was a victim. I seem to deeply feel the pain that other victims do, but feel torn between whether or not I was truly abused. Logically, I know I was. I just don't feel like that is completely true. And it's because of that that I seem to always invalidate my own experiences. On the flip side, when hearing news stories about child sexual abuse, I feel terrible for the victim. Why can't I show myself the same empathy? A couple of reasons. Shame, blame, guilt, embarrassment, number one. Number two, it's possible, especially because it was childhood, that we didn't get a ton of support and love and validation as a child. Therefore, we don't even know how to show ourselves empathy because no one actually showed us what it was like to offer it. Does that make sense? We maybe don't even know how to do that for ourselves because we've never received it. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I know. Sometimes that's hard to acknowledge that like empathy exists. I know how to give it to others. I just don't know how to give it to myself because no one's ever given it to me. So I don't really know how to do that. And if I do, it feels really uncomfortable. If I try to acknowledge, immediately revolt, right? Because it feels so different than what we're used to. It's so out of the norm that we're like, right? Gives us the heebie-jeebies. So what I encourage you to do is to acknowledge that this is happening I want you to try to show yourself just the, we're going to do some like exposure therapy. So show yourself just the littlest bit of empathy. Okay. I can't imagine how much, how hard this would feel. It, this is so difficult for me. This feels so painful. Ugh, right. I, I hate that I'm going through this. What kind of love and support and kindness can we offer? What would it sound like? Write some of that out and then notice what comes up for you. What are the statements that we tell ourselves about this offering of empathy? Or if someone offers it to us, does it do the same thing? I'm just curious. Because we, then we can pretend these messages are coming in. Like, oh, that must be so hard for you. I'm so sorry. I can't imagine the pain you're going through. Or I've been through something similar. You know, can we receive it from others? I wonder. Um, but notice what comes up for you. And in that is your answer. This will probably tell us where we've kind of heard these messages or if it's our shame, blame, kind of PTSD type response. Take your time with it. Let your therapist know this is happening. And slowly but surely, as we kind of challenge ourselves and notice what comes up, we'll get those answers. We'll figure out what the cause is so that we can start start to slowly untangle it or deprocess us. Does that make sense? Not process, I guess it'd be program. Deprogram, that's the word. Um, okay, okay. Let's move on to question number three. This question says, hey, Katie, how do you know it's time to end therapy? I've been working with my therapist for a few years now, but it feels kind of stagnant at the moment. Is this a sign that I need to find a new therapist, end therapy completely, or talk with them about it and how to move through this? It's not like I've sorted through my problems because I still struggle with a lot, but it's a weird feeling. And the thought of finding a new therapist is too much. Thanks for all you do. And for more info and context, I've been seeing this therapist for a few years and they are the only one that I've ever seen. I'm not great at opening up, so maybe it's my fault why I'm, why I'm feeling this way in therapy. In the past two years, I've taken a couple of months off each time to have a quote-unquote break. As when life gets hard, I tend to pull away from people, including my therapist, which is bad. I know. There's always a push-pull when talking about things in session. And I don't know how to shut that up and just say everything that's gone on and how I feel about it. It's like I haven't read the book of counseling for dummies, lol. Okay, let's talk about this. We have a couple of add-ons to this as well, or I think maybe just one. Um... Now, being stagnant or feeling just like we're plateauing in therapy is normal. It's a normal part of the process, and it can happen for a couple of reasons. Number one, it can be because we're not participating. And our therapist could be offering us like all these different things, but we're just not able to do them. So we're not participating, which could be because resistance or maybe a need for medication. Maybe our symptoms are too great. We just can't even get our head above water to even participate fully. So those might be things that you want to look into. Maybe we um, 
need some assistance and motivation and we should tell our therapist, you know, I want to do things, but it, uh, every time I try to start, it just feels really overwhelming. Or, you know, uh, my depressive symptoms or my anxiety symptoms just seem so great. I can never do the homework that you tell me to do. And even in session, I like shut down, you know, let them know. Maybe we see a psychiatrist, we get assessed, see if medication is something that could benefit us. Um, okay. So stagnation in therapy or plateauing is very normal. And it, sometimes it's right before a big like chunk of growth happens because we're laying the groundwork and your therapist could be doing stuff that you might be, maybe don't see why they're doing it, but that could be kind of why it feels that way. Sometimes when I'm trying to get my patients into like something extremely challenging, I'm building up resources with them for a while and they might feel like, well, all we do is talk about easy stuff. Like why for these months have you been talking about just like basic? And I'm like, that's because we're building your resources. Now I'm always more communicative with my patients about that. I'd always tell them like, hey, we're going to build these up so we can move into that. So they know there's kind of this process. Um, but also sometimes there's just stagnation and we're trying to figure out our next move. So let your therapist know that this is happening, that you're feeling this kind of way, like things aren't moving. And let's be open to talking it out because it could be because you struggle to talk in therapy. And so we've kind of hit this wall and maybe your therapist keeps trying to better overcome or manage or decode to get through all of your defense mechanisms, right? Being a therapist is an art like that. We have to figure out how to kind of work with you without overwhelming you, but to get to a place that maybe naturally you're not comfortable being. Does that make sense? And so um, because you've been working for two years with this person and it's, I'd assume so far it's been pretty good. The, those are kind of the things that I challenge you to do is to try to figure out, you know, where this is coming from ask your therapist about it, talk with them about it. Because the ways that you know it's time to end therapy is that the symptoms that bother you are no longer there. And you feel like you go into therapy and there's nothing to talk about. Not because we're avoiding things and it's hard to talk about things. That's not the same thing. It just feels like we're just catching up and there's really nothing to work on. We've already worked through things. We have no symptoms of PTSD, anxiety, depression, whatever it is we're working on, right? That's when we know it's time to end therapy, okay? And I don't think we're there yet. Um, and the fact that trying to see another therapist seems like too much. Let's not engage with that yet. Let's talk with our therapist about this now and work through it. Okay. And part of it might be soothing your system or calming your nervous system down before a session, like doing a body shake, um, in the bathroom before you walk into the waiting room or something like that, that could be helpful. Um, you know, maybe you put in some music in an earbud while you wait to be called into your session do some things, maybe have a ritual before that's like soothing to you. Um, whatever we can do to kind of take that edge off, that could help you maybe push through a little bit more. Okay. Now there were some add-ons that says, are there signs or red flags of when you should look for a new therapist? Also when reporting a therapist, oh, when reporting a therapist might be necessary. I have cycled through quite a few therapists over the past decade and finally found one that I've worked well and effectively with for about two years now. Recently, she hasn't been the best at communicating and ghosted me for a couple of months. What? Following the end of a couple week break after I had an M uh, MDD or major depressive disorder episode and transitioned on to new SSRIs. When I finally got a hold of her and booked an appointment, she didn't show. This is weird. She replied two days later with the same excuse I've heard a handful of times before when she hasn't shown up. My mood has stabilized with SSRIs recently. However, our therapy sessions have been delayed for months now, and I'm not keen on continuing SSRIs without therapy sessions. I'm not either. She said she would contact me when she's ready to continue sessions, which has left me anxious from not having a clear timeline and just waiting to hear from her. What in the fuck? I'm sorry. That's like patient abandonment and I'm very frustrated, but we'll keep reading. I don't want to bombard her with messages. You shouldn't have to. 
but it's um okay bombarded with messages sorry i lost my place now, uh, but it's been a few weeks and I haven't, and I've been feeling abandoned. Of course you have like a burden and like, she doesn't want to work with me anymore, but she still keeps booking appointments with me and hasn't referred me out. I want to be mindful of what she may be going through. That's not your problem. She has her own life, but lately I've been feeling really lost. She offers a good rate, probably because I've been seeing her for so long that I haven't been able to find anyone else. I don't want to find a new therapist if I can avoid it, since when I do have sessions with her, I'm able to really work through my past trauma and heal in ways I've never experienced before. But I would love advice on what you think the next steps might be. Thanks for taking the time to read this. Of course. Okay. Now, lots of thoughts here. Um, red flags of when you should look for a new therapist is like the canceling a lot is one of them. Uh, not remembering important. I have a video about this. Like, I think it's like five or six signs you're seeing a bad therapist. But like, so those things like not scheduling, you can't get any consistency. Forgetting important details about your life, like your name, your partner's name, what you do for a living, what you're working on, stuff like that. Feeling like you're not working toward any goals together. Like there's no treatment plan there. They don't keep focused on something. I feel like you're just catching up every time. That's not actually that therapeutic, by the way. Um, what are other ones? When they talk about themselves a lot. Uh, sometimes I've had people tell me they fall asleep in session. Any of those are reasons for you to look for another therapist. You don't feel like they hear you or understand you. Like they, every time they offer something, you're like, that's not, no, that's not helpful. That's not what I'm talking about. You know, you feel like you're just not on the same page. Um, those are all reasons that you should look for another therapist. And reporting the therapist is it can happen for quite a few reasons, legal and ethical reasons. Now, legal would be if um, there was ever sexual advances that your therapist made, you should file a complaint against them. Um, if they ever abandoned you, which sounds like kind of what's happening here, that's like an ethical issue, like patient abandonment. It's just not consistent, gone for months, no reason, won't reschedule. You could file a claim um, or a complaint, I should say. Um, there are other reasons that you could like if you feel like I mean it's just tricky because I don't think anything else really fits with your situation right there was nothing she didn't make any passes at you it's nothing like that um there weren't any other legal ramifications where like there was no check-in although I'm curious about your major depressive episode and transitioning into new SSRIs were you suicidal at that time because again that's a very like legal and ethical dilemma in therapy like it's the fact that she wasn't there is really bad like if I'm not there for a patient who is suicidal that's why patients get hospitalized so that therapists are protecting themselves essentially protecting their patients and protecting themselves from not giving you enough support when you're going through a tough time and you could harm yourself we want to protect you at all costs right and so if you were having suicidal thoughts during that time and your therapist just like left that's not okay that is patient abandonment. And that's a legal and ethical issue right there with the suicidality. Because we have, um, we like, it'd be like not reporting child abuse or something that we're mandated reporters. And we're also, you know, we have to take, I forget the terms. And my ethic, my law and ethics professor is probably like, how'd you forget? But it's like, we must take reasonable and something steps to protect you. So it's like, we have to take those steps. And if they just left, that's not taking any steps. Um, yeah, so those would be reasons that you could report a therapist. And I'm sure there are more. Um, but patient abandonment is what I think is happening here, which is why I keep kind of going back to that, where they're just not there. Now, I understand that you want to keep seeing them. Um, filing a complaint and then trying to keep seeing them, I don't think go together, just by just my opinion. Um, 
So if you want to find someone else, which I know has been tricky, you could try to do that. But I really think that what needs to happen here is we need to message once a week. That's not too much. Message once once a week asking for the next appointment. And if we've decided to let go of this, then you could, and you want to find someone else, then you could file a complaint for patient abandonment because I think you do have the grounds to do so here. Um, and obviously, especially because you're, you could like book appointments, sounds like online and the messages and stuff, you'd have the evidence to support it because that's what they ask for is like, you know, when would you last? It all, also, you'll know when your appointments were and they're not going to have notes on an appointment you weren't in, right? So yeah, I know that's a lot, but I hope that that helps, okay? And I'm so sorry. Unfortunately, you know, therapists are human and we go through our own shit, which is why we should be in our own therapy so that it doesn't bleed over into our practice. And your therapist needs to communicate why they're gone and for how long. Like I, I've like, okay, my dad died when I was seeing people. Um, I know I was in an eating disorder treatment center, which is a little bit different, but I still had to tell my patients like, hey, I'm going to take two weeks off. Um, I had a death in the family. I didn't tell them much information, you know, but I'm going to be gone. Okay. And we, I had them set up with somebody else. They didn't love it, but it worked out. And it was kind of a nice transition in the fact that we didn't have, like it was most of my patients, because in treatment, they like transition out and new ones come in. So it happened to be a, like almost a good, it's like a good time. Anyway, able to do that. My groups got taken over by someone else. Um, and then even when I came back, I couldn't see patients again. I still just did groups for a while till I felt a little better. And again, that's not your problem. I have to take care of it, right? That's me doing my job. Just like we all do our jobs, right? We prepare ahead, we show up, we do the things we're supposed to do. And your therapist needs to do that. Because if there is some shit going on, then they either need to tell you, I'm not going to be back for X number of weeks or months or whatever. Or they need to close their practice. They need to do something, right? Take care of themselves and figure it out. It's not your problem. Okay. Moving on to question number four. It says, hey, Katie, can being afraid of doing something wrong be related to trauma? Hmm, good question. I'm so afraid, especially in relationships that mean a lot to me, to do something wrong. And there's a big fear in me of being too much or being a burden for other people. I'm afraid of making mistakes such as hurting someone unintentionally with my words or not being thoughtful enough that I have to behave in a way that isn't polite enough. Could my fears be related to childhood trauma? Yes. Let's go through the reasons. One, this sounds like anxious attachment to me. This might be because I'm preparing an attachment workshop. You can, uh, hopefully it's up by the time this goes live, but maybe not, but keep an eye out. I'll be mentioning it on all socials and it will be available to order and purchase and be part of on K at katiemorton.com on my website. But I've been deep, knee deep in attachment, reading about attachment, researching attachment. This sounds like anxious attachment to me, which means that your caregivers, your mom, dad, grandma, whoever your primary person or people were, were inconsistent at best, meaning we didn't know if they were going to be loving or abusive. We didn't know if they were going to show up at all. They might've worked away from home. We didn't know who was taking care of us. We might've cried for a long time and then no one came to help us. We might've been hungry. We might've been neglected in some ways, right? Sometimes they were loving. Sometimes they were abusive. Sometimes they were there. Sometimes they weren't. Any of that type of inconsistency can lead to an anxious attachment, which is that kind of like feeling like you're a burden, worrying that you're going to hurt somebody, um, afraid that people are going to leave you. There's a big fear of abandonment usually with anxious attachment as well. So that's part of what I wonder if is going on here. Okay. So partially, yes. Now that could be linked to trauma 100%. Also, someone mentioned hypervigilance and the person who asked this question said, could this hypervigilance be part of the root, Katie? Great question. I do believe so because 
what we're what also could be going on here is what I would call the fawn response. And remember, fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. And fawn is like extreme people pleasing with the goal of not being hurt again. So if we're being abused or in some kind of way, right, physical, sexual, emotional, whatever's happening, we can think that if we act in just the right way, say and do all the perfect things. We can want to strive for, for perfection. I've had a ton of my eating disorder patients struggle with this because of that fawning response, right? They, We can want to be so perfect so that we don't cause them to hurt us again. And so we can be hypervigilant, reading the room, making sure how does that person feel? So we, we have like complete like enmeshment slash I mean, not really codependent so much, but enmeshment. There's like no boundaries. We can pick up on other people's feelings. And like if someone's upset, we immediately become upset because we're like, oh, and we're on like walking on eggshells. Like, I don't know how to make them feel better, right? As if their emotional state is our responsibility because that's what we taught ourselves to do as a way to cope with the trauma, right? I mean, I think all of us can attest to or at least acknowledge that that's not a healthy way to live. That's not comfortable. That's not it's not good, but it makes sense. And it's adaptive, you know, pat yourself on the back. It got you through some shitty, shitty things, but now it's in the way right now. It's affecting your ability to have relationships when you're out of the trauma. And so, yes, I believe it, the fears could be related to childhood trauma one, like definitely like without a doubt. Now, other people who have this are like, I don't have trauma. It could be attachment based, that inconsistency. It could also be the people pleasing, right? I've struggled with that in my life. I think it's because my family never really talked about conflict or emotions in a real way. It was all like, don't bother the kids. So to have feelings, it felt very out of control. And then I'm like, oh, I guess we don't talk about that, right? It just caused a very internal chaos. And like, I don't want to upset anybody if I just do this. Okay. You know, could be coming from any one of those places. And it could part, it could be, we could call it hypervigilance too. Okay. Now there was a comment on this that I also do this. I've never really thought it could be related to trauma because I feel, I feel like I've had a very good childhood and life, but I do find myself depressed and often suicidal. I've never really known why I started therapy a couple of months ago and I never think that I'm good enough. And I always try really, I'm always really hard on myself. I'm terrified to hurt people. So I usually just shut down and don't put myself out there because I don't want to hurt or do something unintentionally that hurts someone else. I grew up with a mom who was very easy. Oh, it was very easy to hurt her feelings. Here we go. And I always felt like I was hurting her by just existing because my depression has been really hard for her. I'm 24 now with a son of my own. And I guess my question is, can someone cause you trauma if they genuinely never met, meant you any harm? If she even knew I wrote this question, she would cry for days. Thanks, Katie, for all that you do. You're the best. Keep being you. Oh, of course. Of course. Okay. Your mom's extreme sensitivity. I'm wondering, I don't know if she has her own depression, um, if she has borderline personality disorder or just some signs and symptoms. I'm very, her, her level of resilience is so incredibly low. I'm curious what's going on with her, but okay. She's not the one we're talking about. We're talking about you. Now, yes, to answer your question, people can hurt you even if they genuinely didn't mean to. People are traumatized, unfortunately, every day by parents and caregivers who just don't know any better. That doesn't condone their behavior and make it okay. People cannot mean to hurt us and we can still be hurt, right? People can say things that they don't think are offensive and we're hurt. Now, does that mean that, you know, we have to, we can't move on until they apologize. No, we can't control other people. Does that mean it's our job to educate them? Only if we want to, but not really. It's not our job, right? Can someone say and do something that's harmful? Is So 
what is our role then, right? Our role is to let them know that that happened. Now with your mom, it sounds like doing that isn't going to be a beneficial step because she could, she'll just like cry for days and be so upset about it. Again, not your responsibility, but here's what I think is happening for this person. Okay. Now, definitely traumatized because of, first of all, the suit, even if you've had a suicide attempt or thoughts of suicide and put a plan together can be traumatizing. Remember fear for our own safety. doesn't matter if we're the one that's doing it. You know, how hopeless and hope, like how dark and hopeless the depression slash suicidal thoughts can feel sometimes that's traumatizing. Okay. I know, let that sink in. I know a lot of people don't don't want to believe that or it's hard for us to accept it, but that can be traumatizing. Then your mom is extremely emotionally volatile. We don't know what we're going to get. We're walking on eggshells. We're extremely hypervigilant. That's exhausting. We've always lived in a space where even existing felt like we were too much and we were not, um, not even just not good enough, but that us just being there wasn't okay. So of course, our first, like, first of all, our nervous system has got to be fucking wiped because we're like always on eggshells. Um, and then her, we might worry about her safety, how, how upset she can get. Like, I don't know. It's emotional abuse, what your mom is doing. It's kind of manipulation without, you know, I don't know if she has narcissistic tendencies, but I have a lot of questions about her anyways. Um, but yes, I think this could be related to the trauma from your mom and potential. Well, I don't, you didn't say there was a suicide attempt, but if there was, but even deep depression and suicide, suicidal thoughts can be traumatizing. So yes, you can be traumatized by someone if they didn't mean you any harm. And the situation you're in definitely does sound like trauma. Okay. Now the final kind of question, or I guess there's two add-ons left says, I feel this on a visceral level. I'm always afraid of being a burden or too much. To me, this trauma I carry feels like a poisonous toxic sludge that I carry on my back. I'm always afraid if people get too close, they'll get burned by it or worse that they will have to carry part of the load with me. What ends up happening is my friends notice I pull inward and they keep them out. I'm protecting them, but they just feel doors slammed in their face. How do I shut the doors kindly or make sure my stuff doesn't hurt others? Here's how you do it. You communicate clearly. People can't catch our trauma, okay? I know we do have like, there is uh, transgenerational trauma and I forget what they called it. Is it not parasocial trauma? But we can, if we're around someone enough, we can pick up on behaviors of theirs that are very trauma-like, very hypervigilant, very untrusting of the environment. So we can pick up on some things, but the thought that you having this trauma is something that's going to kind of infect them is not true. And here's how we ensure that we're not doing too much with our friends and maybe trauma dumping. Like I, I've shared, I had a video about trauma dumping and went live on my Patreon page last month. Um, so if we're oversharing with, this is when we're trauma dumping. If we're oversharing with the goal of just manipulating someone potentially um, into doing something for us, we could be trauma dumping to try to speed up a connection with someone that's not quite there, like a brand new friendship. We can be moving too far too fast. Um, we can be striving for connection in general and not know how to do it properly, probably because of abuse or lack of boundaries, things like that. On the other hand, venting, which I encourage people to do, is what we do to make ourselves feel better. So we we engage in venting to talk about the things that are running through our heads and have someone hear us, right? We probably don't even want them to try to help or offer aid or support. We just want them to say, oh, that must be so hard. I'm so sorry, right? We want to vent. 
And that's okay to do. And that's okay to talk about the trauma if you feel comfortable with your friends and be like, God, I just hate that this happened to me. And sometimes I'm so frustrated and working in therapy is exhausting, blah, 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 right? The way to know that you're in a healthy dynamic is that you do it to feel better and you have you leave space and conversations for them as well. It's not just the you show sharing everything. Now, I don't think that you're going to be that type of person because you're already like wanting to withdraw so that you don't tell them too much or do too much. But then they're feeling like you're not connecting. And this might be due to the trauma too. I feel like this could be kind of that like disorganized or anxious attachment where we're like, I kind of want people, but I don't know. It doesn't feel safe, right? We can feel that kind of push pull that I kind of want people around then I don't. But I don't think you need to keep them out. I don't really want you to shut the doors. I want you to let people in slowly but surely, little by little, in a way that is helpful and healthy for you. I know your urge is to, to withdraw, but that's not the best choice for you long term. That's not a healthy choice. That's a trauma response. And so we're going to have to kind of push back and fight back against that. Okay. And that, that's actually the end of it. Because the other thing was that could the hypervigilance be the root? And yes, we talked about that. With that, let's move on to question number five. This question says, hey, Katie, growing up, it was really hard to talk to my mom about my feelings. She was always stressed and worried about a lot of things. She was also very overprotective. Now I'm 31 and two years ago, my mom retired. So now both of my parents are retired, living in their retirement home and enjoying their retired life. Ever since retirement, my mom has opened up to me more than ever. I learned a lot of new things about my mom, but I'm starting to feel angry that she's opening up to me. Is this normal? Yes, it is. We'll talk about this. I should be happy she's finally talking to me, but all I feel is anger. I hope you're able to give a little insight. Love your videos. Thanks for all you do. Of course. It looks like we have two add-ons after this, but let's um, actually, I think these, let's just dig into this and we'll, re I think we're going to answer the other ones along the way, but let's just get on the road. Now, something that is hard is and this sounds weird, but just hang with me. We want our parents to change, right? We wish that they would go to therapy. We would love it if they would try medication or try a different uh, group or something, right? Do something. We would love that. That'd be amazing. But the tricky thing is that when they finally do that, we've been dying for them to do that. They change and they feel better. And we're left with the consequences of their previous actions before they changed. And that can be really hard. Now, um, I was talking in, on Patreon with a member of our community last week, and she said something that was very powerful. And it's essentially about this, like her mom has gotten better. And she said, but you know what? The damage is already done. And it made her angry, right? Oh, you're so much better. And you're so glad you're so much better. And you're kind of like flaunting it around. I mean, good for you. But I still still I now I'm struggling with XYZ because of all the shit you did in the past, right? And we can get very agitated and very angry. I want you to know that that's healthy to feel that. It's okay to be mad and happy for her simultaneously. I know sometimes we think that like two emotions like that can't coexist because they don't feel like they go together, but I'm here to tell you that they they do. It's okay. We we have capacity to hold two things. I can be happy for someone and also angry at the things they did to me in the past, right? I can be like, good for you, but like, why the fuck do you have to do that, right? And those things can coexist. I know it feels a little uncomfortable and it might take a little extra effort to allow for it, but we can, and you have every right to still feel angry. Now, I think part of this comes from the fact that we're still dealing with the issues, right? We're still processing it and behavioral change. And well, first of all, growing up in an, a tumultuous or traumatizing environment 
gives us a blueprint for life that isn't helpful. It's like, um, it'd be like you needing a, I don't know, it's the first day of school or for in college and you need these certain books and these certain worksheets and you show up with none of the, like the opposite things. Like let's say you're, you're studying art history and you come in with all the books for physics. That's like kind of what it's like. We get this blueprint that's like for a house that we don't even want to build. And the house is like faulty and doesn't even work and we can't build it. And we're like, I need a different set of blueprints. And then our parents like go and fix themselves. And then they're like, aren't you happy for me? And you're like, I'm stuck with this shitty set of blueprints. Where are the real good blueprints? And they're like, oh, but we're better now. And you're like, fuck my life, right? And so you can feel that way and it is normal. I think part of it is allowing yourself to acknowledge the anger and the frustration and continue to do your personal work. Now, the good news is that engaging with your parents now, your mom now that she's like better, isn't going to be re-traumatizing, but it's going to come with its own set of issues. And what I would encourage you to do is to talk with your therapist and find ways to communicate and open up with your mom about the past. I'm not expecting a, an apology where we can't control other people, but it might be helpful for you to gain more insight into your trauma timeline or help you better understand her perspective and view of things and maybe fill in some gaps as you try to process it through. Maybe we want her to be part of it, maybe we don't, but I think that could be a way to utilize this like change in her for good, for our healing. Because it's, this is where the anger comes from. This is why I'm kind of like, ugh. Because it's, it's her fault that that stuff happened in the past because she was the person who did that. We're trying to make change, which is hard. And so she can be part of the healing if she wants to, if we want her to, and it can be done, you know? And so talk with your therapist, see about that. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with it if it feels safe and okay, but I totally get it if you don't want it at all. And there's no judgment either way. Okay. Now, yeah, I hope that I answered that enough. I'm sorry if I didn't. And there's a comment that said, additionally, my mother is also very over, overprotective and strict. So this is an Adam. It says, feelings weren't important. I'm in my 50s and I'm female and my mother's now in her 70s and she's a very different person now. She's much more open and a hell of a lot nicer. While this is obviously great, how can I reconcile this nice old lady with my childhood? It says, like the original commenter, the situation makes me irrationally angry. It's frustrating, unfocused, and, and, um, impot and an impotent feeling. And I can't help but ask, is this a common thing? Yes, this is a common thing. And I think part of it is it's going to be inner child work. Because we have to, in order to reconcile the past, we can't in the present and as an adult now with the mom that we have now, which is a different mom, right? It's almost like, you know, she's gone through a metamorphosis and now she's different. So it's not the same mom as we had, right? And arguably we're not the same, right? When we were kids, we're totally different. So I think doing inner child work could be incredibly healing in this situation as well. Feeling angry is reasonable and okay and very common because like I said, the damage is already done. Glad you're better. But now what the fuck? Now I'm stuck dealing with this. And it can be very frustrating because it's really hard, right? And this whole blueprint of how to interact and how to, uh, I don't know, build relationships, build a life is like all fucked up. We have to like fight back against it. And it can be really, really exhausting and frustrating. Ha, huh, right? So doing that inner child work allows us to tap into that younger us, see what was happening heal from that offer the love and support that we wanted from our parent back then that we didn't get because mom now maybe could be part of the inner child I really just think it has to come from us because 
child us only has that mom from back then that wasn't helpful and wasn't emotionally available. And so we're going to have to offer younger us some of that love and support that we didn't get, heal those old wounds. And then I believe it will be easier for us to engage with our mom now because we won't be looking at her thinking of all the pain that she's caused us because we've already processed it. We're like, whatever, right? It's not emotionally charged. And we can enjoy the fact that she is different now, but we have every right to be angry because again, like I said before, they like gave us a set of blueprints that hasn't been helpful. And it's actually been really detrimental. And you're like, oh, good for you. You feel better now? Like my life, what? You know, so you have every right to, I encourage you to journal about that and express it and get it out because that can feel really good. Um, Talk with your therapist about it. But let's do some of that inner child work. I even have a workshop on my website. Just go to katiemorton.com. I have an inner child workshop. It's two two-hour sessions with downloadable worksheets. I also have books I recommend. There's all sorts of great stuff there that can help you move through that. Okay, this other person said, I have a similar issue. My mom always worked a lot and away from home. She never talked about feelings. She's still working, but she started calling me at times when she's alone and struggling and opened up more about her childhood trauma. I want to be there for her and build a relationship, etc. But at the same time, it's overwhelming and it makes me angry that she refuses to seek therapy for her struggles, but comes to me. I've been struggling with mental illness for over 13 years now, and she is often blamed. She was often blamed as the one causing the issues in the family. Now I'm 24 and I started to realize that I wasn't the only one in my family with issues. We usually aren't. When there's dysfunction in the family, there's mental illness, right? So a couple of things. Boundaries are going to be really important for you. Now you never got a chance to try to have those as a kid. Um, you never probably even had an opportunity because she wasn't there. In that lack of support and in that kind of inconsistent parent, we never had to place a boundary because she wasn't really there that much, right? And so my encouragement for you is if you don't have the energy to listen to her, if you, you know, because when a phone rings, we don't know what's going to be on the other end, could be just friendly and nice. But every time I want you to consider, do I have the energy to give to this? If not, let it ring through. We can call back when we do. Now, this doesn't mean ghost your mom, unless you're thinking that it's not healthy for you to be in contact. That's totally up to you. But maybe it's the next day. Maybe it's a couple hours later. I don't want you to do it out of guilt. I want you to do it out of a place of joy because I feel good enough to participate in this because I want to. I know, unfortunately, a lot of families are driven with guilt and parents guilt their children into being part of their lives, but that's not a healthy dynamic. We should want to be with our parents. They should want to be with us. I know that can be like rose-colored glasses view, but that's actually the truth. People in our lives that we love should be in our lives because we love them. Simple as that. And so if it's overwhelming to you, I encourage you to tell her so. Like, hey, mom, this is a little too much for me right now. I'm already going through my own stuff. Um, can we talk about something more lighthearted? If she lashes out, right, we have no control over what she says, how she responds. We can say, I didn't mean to upset you. That was not my goal. I just, I just don't have the energy today. I love you. I'm going to hang up. And we can hang up. People can be angry. But they can't expect to just dump on us, right? Boundaries, again, boundaries, okay? And boundaries are things that are done with love. These aren't hateful things. That's just too much for me, mom. I can't. I can't be helpful. You know, I don't have it in me. And we don't, we, we don't have to pick up and we can also hang up at any time, okay? I know it's hard. Hang in there. I also have a boundaries workshop. <laughs> I feel like everything's touching on all of my workshops. There's a boundaries workshop if you're wanting more information on my website as well. 
Let's move on to question six. Question number six says, hey, Katie, are there specific ways touch should be approached in therapy? Great question. For example, someone asked a question about touch in social situations a few weeks ago, and you suggested that it could be practiced in therapy. It could. But I know that two of my previous therapists would absolutely not allow or practice that. Do you think strictly avoiding touch in therapy is harmful? Some allow hugs, some don't. What's the best approach in your opinion? Thank you. You're going to hate my answer, but it just depends on the issue. My trauma patients, it can go one of both ways. And I believe wholeheartedly in communicating about it ahead of time. And touch would only be something that I would offer if a patient asks for it. And we've talked about what that means for them. Because I did have a patient, this is many years ago, but she definitely had some BPD tendencies and would want touch from me as a way of like thinking that I was her mom. And we talked that out. It was part of that transference that we can experience, that attachment in therapy and understanding where that was coming from and doing some inner child work so she could offer some love to herself. So things that I had her do is like she bought a weighted vest so she could wear it into session and then she would like take it off at the beginning. And I'd say, when you feel like you need a hug from your mom, I want you to put that on. Now, I did offer touch to her in ways that felt therapeutic, but it took some time and I wanted to figure out where that urge was coming from. And so I think that's sometimes the concern with therapists is like if they just allow it and say yes, then it could make things complicated or change the dynamic or increase transference in the therapeutic relationship. Does that make sense? And so we can be a little resistant at first or just at least like cautious, right? Now, for me, I feel like as long as I'm talking it out with my patients and we're using it therapeutically, I don't see any harm in it. Um, an understanding of transference is there and what that means and when did they when did they receive touch. Now for my avoidant patients and my patients who are kind of adverse to touch but want to get better, we would do it like an exposure therapy type of thing. Um, and I think I think with attachment-based therapy, it depends on how rigid. Because you have to remember, like when I had my private practice in Santa Monica, I did dialectical behavior therapy and some CBT tools, you know, that was the style of therapist, some attachment-based modalities. That's kind of the the focus that I was, that I focused on in my practice member because I did eating disorders, self-injury work almost primarily. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. And I think that's pretty strict and rigid, but I'm still, I still understand why it might be necessary. And I treat it kind of, like I said, like exposure therapy and just understanding where it's coming from. I don't think any good therapist would allow for touch without any thought, without any con like any conversation about it, because it could be triggering, it could be an attachment thing. And we want to make sure we understand that ahead of time. Does that make sense? I hope so. But I think the best approach is to work with your patients and seek to understand and not have any hard lines drawn in the sand, like stuff like that. Because you just never know what could be beneficial, right? Okay. Moving on to question number seven. It says, Hey Katie, I pick at my pimples when I'm stressed. How do I stop? I've been doing it since I was 11. I have acne scars everywhere. Bikini season is here and girl, I'm embarrassed. I had to wear a long a long sleeve dress on my wedding day. I'm so sorry. What you're what you're experiencing is what's known as excoriation or skin picking disorder. Um I know people are like there's a disorder for everything. I know. Unfortunately, there is. I have an old video about it. Um, you can probably look it up on YouTube, just like skin picking, Katie Morton, it should come up. But excoriation is what they call it. And essentially what's happening is it's an anxiety disorder, meaning that our anxiety gets so high and that's how we cope and we soothe. I know you're like, is it really soothing? It's a distraction. Think about it. If you're focused, if you're looking in the mirror and you're focused on picking, and I'm a picker too, and I'm definitely also anxious. Hello. Um, but 
even one of my best friends, she might, I won't say her name because she might kill me for saying this. She went through, through this phase where she would tweeze out her, her, uh, the hair on her legs, her and her friend would like gossip and tweeze hairs. And she's like, it became almost like an addiction, Katie. Like I get stressed and I like want to tweeze hairs. That's almost, it's not the same as trichotillomania, which is hair pulling. Um, but it's similar, right? I mean, you know, she was tweezing and it happens to be hairs. It was something that she would do when she felt overwhelmed or stressed out. Same with you. And it's just a, it's something we do to self-soothe in the same way we use food, shopping, uh, self-injury, uh, other addictions like alcohol, drugs, right? We can do all these things to help us feel better. And so my encouragement for you is to talk with your therapist about the fact that this is happening. Maybe there's medication that could lower our anxiety. So it lowers the urge to pick. Um, know that we're, we can't just stop. So I encourage you to put off the urge because I think of this almost in the same vein because it's an anxiety-driven disorder. It's something that we do when we feel overwhelmed. I think of it very similarly to OCD, okay? It's not OCD, but it kind of is, okay? I feel like it's very similar. Um, any of my OCD people are, you know, offended by that or think I'm wrong, that's okay. You can tell me in the comments. I'm not, it's not hard and fast. I'm just saying I think there's a lot of similarities, okay? because we have the obsession about picking and that stress can build that we need to do it. Now, I don't know if people who struggle with excoriation think that something bad's going to happen, but I think it's just the level of stress and anxiety as it builds gets so uncomfortable. We have to do something to release it. We pick, we feel a little bit better, and then it builds again. So we need to figure out ways to calm our system down. Could be full body shakes. When we feel that urge to pick, I want you to try a full body shake. I want you to try journaling for five minutes, maybe go for a walk around the block, call a friend, right? Try some of these other coping skills. Uh, paint your fingernails. That can sometimes help because nobody wants to pick and mess something up. You just did. That helped my self-injury patients too. Um, try some of those things. Change the temperature, you know, splash cold water in your face. Let's see if we can calm our system down and distract enough for that urge to go away. Now, if it doesn't and we pick anyways, it doesn't mean you failed. Try, try again. But talk to a therapist. Let them know that this is happening. It's an anxiety-based uh, disorder. So medication can be helpful. Cognitive behavioral techniques can be helpful. Um, let's find a way to calm you down so you don't feel so overwhelmed that you don't have any other way to deal, you know? Okay. Final question, question number eight. It says, hi, Katie. How might you explain the pull towards relationships with people that you know are unavailable or unable to give you what you know you deserve? I had a past of sexual trauma and assault, and I know it's related. But I, as I've continued to work through this, I still find myself being fearful of people who are available to love me and gravitating towards people who I know inevitably won't be able to. Almost like I'm self-sabotaging. I'm working through this with my therapist, but would love your insight. Thanks for everything you do. Of course. I love this question. Now, so glad you're working through this. Unfortunately, this is not the last battle, but it's one of those last hurrahs of that like toxic upbringing that's like holding its grip on us. And the reason that we're like tractor beams for people who are unavailable and not able to give us the love that we need might even be kind of abusive is because that's what we're used to. It sucks, right? That fucking set of blueprints they gave us shows us that's the person that's right for us. And we're like, this, these are toxic. I should set these t blueprints on fire, right? Which is what you're trying to do in therapy is like redraw them. We need a total redraw. But until that redraw happens, we still feel like th those are the people that are the most attractive because they remind us of the people we were raised by. It sucks. That dysfunction is like, you know, embedded in us from childhood. Now, I know even saying terms like that can make it sound like it's, we're going to be unable to change it that's not true. What we're going to have to do is be uncomfortable a little bit. 
my therapist gave me the same advice after I had a string of like three boyfriends who were kind of very similar. She wanted me to be uncomfortable. That's my challenge to you. Yes, I know it sucks. I received that same advice myself and I hated it, but it ended up turning out pretty good. I think I'm looking over Sean's over there. Um, So you said that those people who seem available, right? You're fearful of them. I encourage you exposure therapy style, talk with your therapist, come up with some ways to calm your system down. I want you to engage in conversation with people like that. People that you think, they might show up for me. I don't really think I like it. I want you to build a few relationships, just casual relationships with people like that. I want you to get used to it. I want you to consider what that would be like. Now, is it going to be comfortable? Are we going to fall in love with the first one? Probably not. Um, probably be really uncomfortable and we'll try to hang in there, but we might ghost them. And that's okay. We're learning, right? And I know people might be like, but the people that they're hurting, communicate as much as you can. And be as honest as you can. Don't lead them on. And if you aren't going to see them anymore, tell them, you know, I'm seeing someone else or something. You know, let's try to try to think about them too. But being uncomfortable in these situations is actually healing and is moving you closer toward a healthier, happier relationship. But it's not going to happen overnight. We still have that old set of blueprints we know so well. And we're like, oh, that person, I'm drawn to them. They're so mysterious. They seem like just a little bit like bad enough, but like good, right? Have all the things. I remember I went to an open meeting with AA. I had to bring um, the patients from the eating disorder treatment center every so often. And this woman was speaking and she stood up and she said, I can pick out an emotionally unavailable man in any room. And she goes, and I have to have him. And she was like, and that was the beginning of like, essentially her like realization of how toxic her, her upbringing was and everything. That I don't know why has just resonated with me so much because myself, friends of mine, we have these patterns, right? And these like blueprints kind of where we find, I think mine is because my dad worked away from home a lot. So he actually wasn't around. It was like inconsistent, right? I could say I have anxious attachment with men. You could say that. I don't know if maybe, maybe I did, right? That's my therapist never said that, but maybe that's what we're working on. So anyway, when we have that inconsistency or when we think that someone who's not available is the right fit, we're going to continue to be in those relationships. And so the best thing I ever did was to be single and seek out relationships that made me a little bit uncomfortable. And yes, go on that second date. Maybe not the third, but we're trying to push it just a little bit. And every time you think of like, oh, but it just doesn't quite feel right. I think that's good. Now I'm not saying go against your gut. We're like, this person gives me the creeps. It's more like this person's available and I don't know what to do with that kind of love. Or are they faking me out? They seem a little too nice. I want you to lean into that and check in with your therapist along the way just to make sure you know, we're picking good people, but I want you to slowly engage with that because that's where the healing will happen. Is it comfortable? No. Is any healing comfortable? No. And change is hard, but stick with it and try, try again. It doesn't mean you won't feel excited and Twitter pated and all the wonderful things with someone. We just have to get through this like rewriting the blueprint so that then we can feel that. And this will speed that up. Okay. Okay. Thank you all so much for watching and listening. Thank you for sending in your questions. Like I said, you can go over to katiemorton.com. I have a ton of workshops over there. I also have my Patreon page if you're looking for more connection and more advice, more videos, all of the stuff, you can hop on over there. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Do your homework and I'll see you next time. Bye. Katie. Anything. All finished, honey.